This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is May 11th, 2023. While a lot of the financial world was focused on the Potomac this week, where fierce negotiations over the U.S. debt limit continued, we set our sights on the China Seas. China remains the second largest economy in the world and an important global player. And the end of their zero-COVID strategy and reopening to the world is still relatively new, at least in terms of the pandemic timeline. But it does bear paying attention to as global investors determined how to best move forward. There are a lot of you know, links between um, China and the global, and the global economy, so it's, it's really important to follow um, what is happening there. Um, but also, I think going forward, there will be lots of questions. That's our first guest. I'm uh, Thomas Verbraken and I work in MSCI's Risk Management Solutions Research Team and I'm based out of the Budapest office. The geopolitical tensions and the potential decoupling um, between China and other countries is, is a theme that, um, that will you know, keep coming back, um, as well as domestic developments in, in China, for example, in the real estate sector. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Before we talk about where we might be headed, we do need to take a step back and look at where we've been. For that, we turn to our second guest. My name is Shuo Xu, so you can call me Shuo. Currently, I'm the executive director and looking after the China-related research topic. In the last three years, China has a very strict uh, zero COVID-19 policy. So they locked down a couple of living blocks from time to time. Uh, and some people are asked to stay at home and the kids, they have to uh, stay at home to take online uh, education course from time to time as well. So that's a difficult time for everyone. So um, the economic and travel, trade, everything, uh, they all slow down a little bit in, in that three years. And uh, luckily, we uh, finally reopened. And uh, we're trying to exit and drop the, the zero COVID-19 policy. And uh, we ended that uh, in last year, December. And actually, we announced that in uh, end of October. So we uh, technically, we ended in uh, last December. After that, um, we see a lot of international travel is recovering. Um, and domestic travel is also uh, recovered from time recovered from uh, previous very strict controls. So every people is very uh, happy and uh, feel freedom now. So <clears throat> maybe I, I give a very quick example. In the last three years, when I tried to travel from my home to office, so I just need 30 to 40 minutes to drive. So it's a direct way. So you will see only a few people, a few cars on the, on the street after the uh, open up. Uh, even during the weekend, I, there's a lot of uh, traffic jam everywhere. So I spent almost uh, two hours to drive from office to my home, even at night in, uh, around, at around 11 o'clock. So that's terrible, right? But a lot of people just uh, get back onto the street. Everybody is happy and they get out to enjoy the life here. 
It wasn't just people who were happy with that change. If you look at the equity performance, um, then you see that Chinese equities started losing in, in early 21, while other equity markets at that time continued to go up. For example, the US uh, equity market or to a lesser degree also European stocks. Um, and that slow sell-off since early 2021 then really intensified in March 2022 at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That it was a combination of global and domestic um, headwinds. The COVID lockdowns played an important role um, in the sell-off, but there were other things going on. Then actually around the end of October last year, um, Chinese stocks bottomed and have seen a remarkable uh, rally. So between the end of October last year and the beginning of February this year, the MSCI China index was up by about 50%. And um, yeah, I think the China reopening with its potential revenge spending and, and the prospects of a stronger post-lockdown economy were probably an important driver of this, this rally. Revenge spending. Can you define that for us? Yeah, that's an interesting term, right? Uh, you could wonder who is taking revenge on, on whom. But they use this term to refer to the fact that during the COVID lockdowns, Chinese consumers were saving uh, more than before because, you know, they, they couldn't spend as much, of course. Um, and some expect that with the lifting of the lockdowns, consumers will start speeding up spending their additional savings. Now, um, this additional spending could not only have a local effect, but it can also be advantageous to global ex-China companies, which are selling to Chinese consumers. Revenge spending is a word we talked about, um, I, I believe, uh, in 2020, back in 2020, because at uh, that time, we just had a pandemic outbreak. And we talked about revenge spending after the first time uh, lockdown. And actually, after the three years, people are trying to get out home. They want to uh, spend a lot of money because they're demanding the consumption has been under a lot of pressure in the three years. They want to eat uh, at a, a very fine restaurant. They want to travel. They want to uh, watch movies. They want to go to pub, uh, listen to music, a lot of things. But in China, currently at this moment, I want to make maybe make it more uh, precise. What we see here is a needs for revenge spending, but it's not there yet. So maybe I can give another example here. There's a, a very famous uh, tourist uh, space in, in, in China. We call it Sanya. It's, it's uh, actually a beach in Hainan province. It's very famous in China. Uh, and everybody, when they have a summer vacation, they will go to Sanya. And uh, this season, we are seeing more tourists than before. If you go back four years or five years back, we have even more tourists now. But it turns out lower average spending means people are spending less money per person, which means people are not capable or maybe not willing to spend uh, as much as they did before. So it's a need for the revenge spending, but it's still not there yet. One of the continued areas to watch around China's being open for business once more has been the potential effect on the global economy. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword, as Thomas explained. For example, according to scenarios that Thomas and his team have been analyzing this year. In the hard landing scenario, where we go through recession, stronger Chinese growth because of the reopening could 
prop up global demand and could be you know, a welcome support for the global economy. Um, whereas in the stagflation scenario, stronger Chinese growth could add to inflationary pressures and make the job of the central banks harder. What about the view from the ground in China, where, once again, seems to be rooted in travel? Before the COVID-19, Thailand is actually one of, or maybe the place that China people choose to spend their holidays. And just after we reopened the gate, reopened the board, a lot of people trying to travel to uh, Thailand these days. And we saw that the local price, local service price, including the taxi, even a bottle of juice, the price increased significantly in just uh, maybe a couple of months, especially after January, February, and uh, this month. And some people say, okay, so China is trying to export some inflation now. But uh, let's take another look at the entire thing. Yes, China is trying to spend and import. Maybe sometimes they buy a lot of things abroad. But if we're looking back at the history, we will see that China will always export a lot of things, even more than what it imported. And that the long term, China will play in the long term. It helps to um, speed up the, the economy recovery in Thailand as well. So it will also try to recover the entire industry in Thailand and in a positive way. So ultimately, I think this reopen will not try to maybe make the inflation problem worse. That's definitely in line with research we put out that talked about how globalization had helped to keep inflation low for so long. And that when the world kind of retrenched and and looked inward on a national level, that was one of the factors that that led to this spike in inflation. Is that in line with what you're you're talking about? There's many, many reasons for uh, recent inflation. Of course, a lot of people are trying to make the energy the bad guy, right? <laughs> They're saying, for example, uh, Russia has some conflict with uh, Ukraine, and it makes the energy price shoot into the sky. And uh, food supply is also not enough. So there's a lot of reasons. And as you just mentioned, China plays a part in that, which means because China has a long history of uh, very cheap uh, labor force, and the product uh, is very cheap here. And sometimes uh, I know people call China as a, a world factory because it can literally produce everything here and in a very uh, cheap. But one thing I try to remind here is uh, also a very interesting point, because if we're looking at the population, um, if we're looking at the past uh, 60 years, I mean 16, uh, 60, 60 years, the China has always has a positive growth in the entire uh, population. So we always has enough uh, labor force supply in the, in the past uh, more than a half a century. But uh, in last year, 2020, we are seeing a decrease in the entire population. It's a negative number for the first time in the past 60 years. Previously, China has a fair story of with so-called so labor yield because of more people and more productivity and um, uh, maybe can contribute to the global economic growth. But in the next uh, a few years, 
we'll see less labor fees join the market and contribute. That actually worries me about the global economy in going forward. So what if China people can only produce less products in the long run and uh, labor force? And some people know the human cost is increasingly expensive in China. And some people just move their factory to uh, Southeast Asia because it's maybe even cheaper there. Under that kind of situation, China will try to balance a lot of uh, growth opportunity, growth target with the uh, decreasing population. So how that will impact the global inflation? I, I think it's too quick to make a conclusion here, but I think the globalization could be uh, ultimate helpful. While no one can predict the future, whether it's about if increased globalization will once again help keep inflation in check or, well, really anything else, right? We did reference, however, those scenarios that Thomas and team have been looking at, where they look at different possibilities of what may happen and run it through to get output from the MSCI models. Now, you may recall earlier, Thomas spoke about how the hard landing scenario and he also used the word recession, as well as the role that China might play under those conditions. Again, according to our model. In any case, I asked him to expand on that. What I meant is um, if the global economy goes through a recession at the same time, we have you know, the Chinese economy reopening and we see a strong um, economic outlook in China that could, you know, to some extent, offset the troubles um, in the global economy, that it could help balance out things um, a, little, a little bit. Thank you for clarifying that. What was the impact on the portfolios you looked at? Well, maybe we can now go a bit more to the China reopening story because I was maybe staying a bit at the at the high level, more global picture. But if we now zoom in a little bit to the, we did a slightly different analysis of what we usually do. Uh, usually, we look at we take the top down approach, you know, the the macro view, how it impacts broad markets and how it impacts portfolios. Now we zoomed in a little bit more to the to the stock specific level, and you know what they say about stock markets, namely um, a rising tide lifts all boats um, in the sense that when the broad stock market goes up, most stocks generally go up, but not all by the same amount. So some stocks are more sensitive to the market and go up more than the market. We usually say they have a beta larger than one. Some stocks are less sensitive. Um, they have a beta smaller than one and they go up a little bit less than the broad market. So this whole movement between broad markets um, and individual stocks is what we call the systematic return. And that's what we usually use in our scenario analysis. We make assumptions for the broad market and use that in combination with the stock's beta to the market to determine how each stock will move under a scenario. However, stock's return also has an idiosyncratic component, which is not driven by the broad market, but by stock-specific effects. And that's what we looked at for this analysis. We leveraged MSCI's economic exposure to China. This is a stock-specific data point, which tells how much of a company's revenue originates from China. And that information can then be used to determine whether a particular stock would get a positive impact of a China reopening beyond just the broad movement of the market, beyond that systematic return. We use this framework to assess what happened um, during the, the sell-off of Chinese equities we were mentioning, as well as the rebound 
But then we looked at, okay, what happened to global stocks, you know, global ex-China stocks with a large revenue exposure to, to China? And what we found is that if a stock derives a lot of its revenue from China, then it tended to underperform um, the market uh, during the sell-off, whereas it tended to outperform the market on average during the, the rebound. Of course, like within this universe of stocks, there is a lot of variability among stock returns and the China exposure can only explain a, a part of, of those stocks' uh, idiosyncratic returns. But on average, that trend was visible. And basically, when building a portfolio, one could consider using this additional piece of information to not only assess the systematic, you know, top-down impact of the broad market, but also a stock-specific revenue exposure to China. What about that look ahead I mentioned at the start of the episode? What's on investors' minds? When we talk to some asset owners, uh, or maybe some larger, large asset managers who has a very robust balance sheet, they might be more conservative on their investment. They might be uh, shied away from China investment. They want to keep low risk and uh, be safe. But for some um, asset owners, some of them may be underfunded. Right? So means they need to achieve a higher growth in the future. They need to capture the high growth uh, opportunities in the global economy. So those uh, investors, they are looking at the opportunities in China, although they know uh, they are aware of the existing risks among them is what I mentioned that the population is decreasing uh, in, a, in the last year. At the same time, for, for example, uh, they want to uh, make more fair uh, distribution of the wealth. Uh, they want to make the uh, health system more um, accessible for everyone and the, even the education system. So for the long run, there's a lot of problems China government need to solve. Although it does have a very big uh, potential, uh, like they invest a lot in the high-tech end, so it's tried to uh, develop uh, its, its advantages in, in many aspects. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe, Yair, and me, to Thomas and Chuo, and to all of you for listening. For insight into how companies and investors, both in China and around the world, are navigating the low-carbon transition, I invite you to register for the MSCI Climate Action Conference, which you can do at MSCI.com. You'll find sessions for APAC, as well as the Americas and EMEA. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.